Hi, my name is Chris, and this is Social Distancing. Episode 25. That makes sense, because Canada. This is my friend Chris. Chris is a podcast producer and editor who has worked for shows like ESPN's 30 for 30, ABC's The Dropout, and Slate's daily podcast, The Gist. These days, Chris is working with podcast legend Roman Mars over at 99% Invisible, producing and editing stories. For Chris... The interest in radio came during his time in college. Well, I grew up in Canada and I went to college in Canada and actually did a college radio show for five years. So that both shows you like how long it took me to graduate. But also (laughs) it was great practice. I mean, it's something like it. Basically, I just hosted radio like for two or three hours a week for five years. And then on the other side of that, like learned how to edit interviews, learned how to, you know, be on microphone and be comfortable with that. So that was kind of the way that I actually got a lot of practice and, you know, was fairly capable, like capable enough to do internships and stuff later. So that was the first thing. And like that was a music show. But like I was kind of surprised that, you know, I was in Toronto and whenever a band was coming through town, I'd send an email and like almost everybody said yes. Like I think I realized like publicists need stuff to do. (laughs) So they will say yes to almost anything sent their way to be like, look, I'm doing it. I'm, I'm getting you interviews set up. So like I interviewed like st vincent and george clinton and like all these oh, wow. people coming through yeah it was like a i was shocked and i wasn't ready to interview any of these people and i'm sure those tapes are not very good <laughs> if you listen back on them now but yeah like that i think just five years of that and when i started it was still like recording everything on a physical like hard disc tape and it had this unfortunate tendency of just erasing if it was near any like kind of magnetized thing. So if you put a key card near it, it would just erase the interview. So like I was constantly just losing tape and it was right, like right at the end of that is when everyone started editing things digitally. But like, yeah, I started it with like actually having like a physical piece of magnetic tape and having to go through and like cut out sections based on that. And if you deleted something, it was gone forever. And like no command Z. Yeah. (laughs) So that's, that was kind of the start of it. I mean, like around that time I was mostly doing work. Like I was doing, you know, real jobs, like selling ice cream or shredding documents and things like that. But that's kind of how I got into it and didn't like through that came to realize like, Oh yeah, this is, you know, the editing part is something I'm actually pretty good at and kind of find calming and relaxing. And that's what I like to do. So that, got me into it as like a job I could do potentially. So one of my most recent episodes, my best friend from growing up, he discovered a radio station that he and I made at the age of 13. And so this was back in 2003. And oh man, I don't know if you've ever heard like your first tape or really early tape before, but listening to that really made me realize a lot of things that I hated about that, but also were really things that I grew to understand and appreciate about myself that I subconsciously had no idea of understanding at that time. Have you had that experience when you think back to some of your first (laughs) recordings or your first interviews? Oh, gosh. I mean, once in a while, I will hear something that I made a long time ago and be like, "Uh, this? Okay. Yeah. I mean, it's funny. There's a, a writer, John McPhee. I'm not sure if you are a fan of his, but he said what is interesting to him as like a, a journalist and a writer is that he almost is always going back to stuff he was interested in when he was 12 years old. Like it's kind of all those 
things that are kind of like hard coded into you to be interested in. Like in his case, it was like baseball and also crime, like all these things that as a 12 year old, he kind of, you know, was obsessed with and took out books about. And like, I think that is true. Like, I think deep down there is some part of a person that's like always going to be interested in the stuff you're interested in as a kid. Uh, however that manifests. And like, that is something I think I notice is like, yeah, I, I think I've had the same you know, I, I made a 30 for 30, which was a sports documentary. And I was obsessed with like sports stats. And that finally came into play, you know, as an adult when I got to make that. And, you know, I always had an interest in like trains and architecture. Like that's kind of really stuff that's useful to me now. So yeah, I, I, that stuff is all still there. Like that's kind of the connective thread between who I am now and who I was as like a, a 12 year old or something. <laughs> but I think as a kid, I I was one of those kids who like recorded their voice all the time and like love to hear and listen back to their voice. And it is funny because that's a big difference from who I am now, because now I'm somebody who mostly works behind the scenes. Like I'm on microphone once in a while. I actually like really hate listening to the sound of my own voice now, which I think is fairly common <laughs> for people who do radio stuff. There are some people who don't mind it. I mean, there are some people who really like it, but it's I, I think a lot of people that I have worked with who are really good, like have a hard time listening to their own voice. Cause it, it, you just think about all the decisions you made, you know, when you were making something and all the stuff you could have done differently. And I think that's, you know, can be healthy, but can also be really counterproductive. Uh, it's interesting. I went and looked at your professional website, chrisperube.com. Oh, sure. And, and at the bottom of the work, it says, I am not this guy or this guy. And one of the guys who you link to is Craig Berube, who is the head coach for the St. Louis Blues, mm-hmm. which I lived in St. Louis for almost a decade. I lived in St. Louis when they won the Stanley Cup. I wonder how often you, obviously it happens often enough that you have to give that disclaimer. Is that really something that happens or is it mostly just like a, you're, you're, self-depreciating enough to appreciate things like that um well thanks i mean it is i used to actually have a real problem with that because there is another guy named chris berube who is in los angeles and does he ran an improv theater for a while and i used to get his emails because our email like i had uh, for a long time we were competing for the website for myname.com and then at some point he got an email address which was like our name at mail.com and I think a lot of people were like, oh, you know, they made, they were like, oh, I assume it's Gmail. And then they would send email to me. By the way, hot take. That's, that's my email address. If anyone wants to, <laughs> my <laughs> first name, that last name of Gmail. Um, I'll cut that. Don't worry. It's You're fine. Safe. I don't care. It's people could guess. <laughs> and I would get those emails for a long time. And like, I got some weird email that was intended for him um, because he was sort of, I think, peripherally involved with lots of Hollywood stuff. Like, I get emails from people being like, yeah, has my audition tape any good? Like, do you know how I get into the new Spider-Man movie? You know, and like, I got asked to blurb a book for him. <laughs> once. Um, so I've had to like put in these disclaimers. And then there was another guy with my name who was arrested in Boston for like child abuse or something, like something really dark. Yikes. And one time I got asked about him in a job interview because <laughs> someone had Googled me and was just like, just to be sure, this doesn't seem like you. And but another, this is another guy. Right. And I had to like go through the whole thing. But for Craig Berube, too, it's that for a long time when you 
tried to look me up, it was it was all him. Did you mean Craig Berube, it would say at the top? Exactly. And like when I was a kid, because he played for the Flyers, he played for the Flyers mostly in his career, right? Like people thought I was related to him or just kind of made that assumption, even though it's a fairly common French Canadian last name. So sometimes I would actually like kind of play that up and like pretend it was a, I'd be like, yeah, 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 we're, we're definitely related. And like, maybe we are distantly. <laughs> I have an extraordinarily generic name, Matthew Moore. You say the thing about pretending to be related to somebody. This actually happened to me when I was a kid. A Walk to Remember was a huge, huge hit. And the yes. main star of that show was Mandy Moore. I used to tell people that Mandy Moore was my distant cousin. <laughs> and by people, I mean girls to impress them and of get course, them to yeah. think I was cute. Right. And it somehow never worked. I don't understand why they didn't believe that a guy from a small town in Illinois was somehow magically related to the fourth most common last name in the country. <laughs> it's such a weird thing because like, that's one of those stories where it's like, yeah, distantly related. Why wouldn't they believe that? It's funny because uh, my brother, I think this was like three years ago, he called me at work a couple times and I was like, oh no, is everything like, is my mom okay? Like what's going on? And then I called him back and he was like, oh, I just needed to tell you, uh, I went on a genealogy website and I figured out that Celine Dion is her distant cousin. <laughs> and I was like, oh, that's, the best news I've ever heard. That's great. <laughs> That's amazing. I thought our whole family was dead, but it was like, Oh, incredible. But it's one of those things where like all French Canadian people are related going back to like a boat from France, you know? So that is one of those things I tell people and they're like, yeah, that makes sense. Cause Canada, like they just yeah, kind of yeah, yeah, all yeah. Canadian people are in some way connected to each other. <laughs> so where are you in the ranking of Matthew Moore's? That's a great question. I, From what I can tell on the internet, if you search Matthew Moore, you don't usually find me because there was a baseball player. He was a pitcher whose name was Matt Moore, and he pitched for a while. I don't know if he still pitches or not, but I think he was with Tampa Bay and kind of floated around. And so when he was more prominent, I was harder to find, but I was also less... I mean, I was younger, so I was a little less present on the internet. I've kind of tried to establish myself as Matthew R. Moore or Matthew Ryan Moore on the internet because just a little bit more specificity makes it a little easier to find me. I was going to say, you, you can't do a Topher Grace situation where it's like Chris Grace is too... So we went with... You can't be Sue Moore. When I look back at some of your work, I notice, especially in your website, you make this distinction between things that you've produced and things you've edited. Can you give a little bit of context? The The world of podcasting can kind of be weird when we give titles to things. I think in movies and in music, we tend to know like this is what a producer does. This is what an editor does. In podcasting, it kind of seems like, well, for the most part, a podcast is usually just done by one person. And so they are the host and the producer and the editor, and they do all of those things. How do you distinguish those two roles? Well, it's funny because I think that there's like also two definitions of editor. Like editor could be the person who is like cutting a piece of tape. Uh, for people who don't know, like we don't physically cut tape. It's like a thing you do with, you know, waveforms and stuff on a program. But it's like that person is an editor, but also the person who is like looking at scripts and making big structural changes to scripts and stuff is also an editor and it's just kind of unclear like which is which i think that i mean a producer i guess part of using the word editor is that you know i'm lucky i work on a show now where everybody kind of does everything like on every story for our show it's like somebody writes a script they do all the interviews they you know lay it out and then they bring it to the group and everyone in the group 
makes comments and notes and suggestions and improvements. And then, you know, we all kind of just work on that together for a couple of weeks and then the story comes out. So everybody is editing in that case in one way, but also, you know, I, I think the distinction doesn't really matter all that much. It's something that I put down just because it's also, there's also something where you can say like, I'm an editor. Like that feels a little more, I don't know. It feels more senior or something. It feels more fancy being like, I, I'm editing. People trust me to like make the final decisions on stuff. Well, and when we think in the journalistic world, an editor is someone who's like in the print world, the editor is the person assigning reporters to do stuff. They're the sure, one who yeah, has final yeah. say over what is and isn't in the article. And so in the audio world, there's probably a little bit of element to that. You're not necessarily like assigning stories to people, but you do have a little more say as to what's happening, right? Maybe. I mean, it dep- It all depends. Like, the thing that's very nice about the audio stuff is it's very collaborative. I edited all the episodes of Articles of Interest, which is like the spinoff 99PI show, uh, hosted by Avery Truffleman, which is about clothing uh, and fashion and all the very complicated thirty politics about that. And, like, my role as the editor there was basically just to look at what Avery was doing and like be a resource for her much more than the person who's like, like I didn't have to go and say like, go do this and this and this. Like she got all the tape and put it together. And like my job was to kind of be there to help make some of the ideas more clear or like work through story problems with her. But like I was there to help her as opposed to, you know, an editor at a newspaper whose job is to be like, what stories do we need today? And, you know, you call your reporter and say, you've got to go here. And, you know, so it's, it's, different from job to job like i think that one i was very lucky because like yeah Avery is like the best writer in radio all i have to do is kind of come in and be like this part could you know use a little bit of polish or you know this this part's running a little long like that's that was not me running the show role but other places i've worked like where i've done editing jobs like the editor is the person who figures the whole thing out like you give it a bunch of raw tape and you're like figure out what this is supposed to look like you know what's been one of your favorite stories to edit one that jumps out to me is the 99 percent invisible story about the baja men and who let the dogs oh, out sure. yeah can you talk a little <laughs> bit about what it what it took to be an editor for that story that one was really interesting because it was this guy ben sisto who has spent like the last uh, I want to say 15 years, 10 years, uh, just doing a ton of research on where the song Who Let the Dogs Out came from. <laughs> and he found on Wikipedia this one line that said, Who Let the Dogs Out was originally given to the Baja Men by this hairdresser named Keith. And he's like, there's no citation. Like, who is this guy? And he like did some digging and he found out that there have been iterations of that song going back decades, basically. <laughs> and it's a, it's this incredible story about like creativity and like how stuff built like who is the author of stuff is never clear and like art builds on itself and all this other stuff and it's an incredible story and as the editor in that case my job was to like work with ben because he had already like done a documentary about it <laughs> like he'd, he'd he'd done the story but my job was to figure out like what are the beats to make this story make sense in like a 30 minute package right so in that case the whole job is like figuring out what's totally essential rewriting parts of the story together you know like i was in all the recording sessions where he's talking to roman and it sounds like really natural but we had to do like multiple takes of everything because that's how you make something you know for our show one of the things that i like the most about it was that every time there seemed to be a piece of the story and you're like okay that's it right 
Well, no. And, yeah. and you know, it, it happens more than once. And then you kind of get to a point where you're just like, there's no way that there can be like another right. thing. And there's still another thing. There's no bottom. <laughs> and so that's what's really, I think that's where the editor really comes in key there because it's one of those things where you almost want it to feel like, all right, the story's wrapped up. Here we are. Okay. No, not really. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, it's when you think about like story structure and I also have to say like, there's a, a very good producer named Emmett Fitzgerald who did like a lot of structural work on the story too. And like, I think he is also like, he's credited as the editor on that story. It's something where like, that's a weird story because you're telling it in reverse chronological order. Like you have to figure out a way to tell the story where it has tension, but like, the normal way to tell a story is just do everything from the beginning to the end. Right. Um, and that story, it's like, that story makes more sense to tell it. You know, you start with the song, everybody knows, and you just go back and back and back. And like, that was an interesting one. Cause it was trying to figure out like how to do that. And it all makes sense. Even though you're doing the opposite of what you're supposed to be doing to tell a story clearly. <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about the 30 for 30 story. How did you get involved in that? Did you pitch the story? So that was that was one where I was brought in. I think they'd already decided, like, we want to do something on the first. So this was on the first Ultimate Fighting Championship. And the UFC, the origins of it were that a guy, basically, it's like this guy was like, wouldn't it be cool if, like, a boxer fought a wrestler? Like, who would win in that case? It's like one of those, you know, bar conversations people have. It's like, who would, who's the toughest person ever? Like... Who would, if you put all the best, you know, baseball players together, like who would be the best, you know, what that, that kind of stuff. And this guy said it, and this was maybe the only person who was like, oh yeah, I'm actually going to make it happen now. <laughs> like, I actually want to see what that looks like. And I would really like to, like, I, I just, it'd be cool if we actually did it in real life. And he like worked with this jujitsu master and they recruited all of these like they recruited a boxer and a wrestler and like a shoot fighter and all these people together and put them in one place. And it was like, the first one was like a huge disaster. And the thing that was really interesting about that story is like how it went from this thing that, that doesn't look professional, that just looks like a, a mess to the biggest thing in the world. Right. Like what is the, how did that happen? I was brought in like to make that, I think like I, it was not my idea. It was like a, Hey, we kind of want to do this. Like would, would your, the company I was working for at the time, Pineapple, was asked, like, would you do it? And they were like, sure, Chris is available. Let's get Chris to do it. Um, so it was like, yeah, the next week I was on, like, a plane to Phoenix, Arizona, and then, like, Las Vegas. <laughs> and that's a story that I also, like, I was really excited to, like, make a 30 for 30 because I like some of those documentaries a lot. But also just really interested in that story because it's, like, something I never really connected with UFC before that. I had no interest in, in UFC prior to that. And so hearing this story really kind of made me second guess. Because when we think of the UFC now, we think of this highly produced, over-exaggerated, like it's wrestling but real kind of vibe. And when you we pull all the curtains away and you pull the, the gaff tape of the octagon away, you realize that like everything has to start somewhere kind of thing. And I mean, in this case, it was all, like the stuff that was interesting and appealing to me was like, all these people doing something that had never been tried before <laughs> and kind of the, the mix of like personalities you need to make something like that. Um, and in this case it was, you know, you needed all these people who uh, basically like fighting was kind of their whole life and all they wanted to do. And like, that's not something that I, I totally got at first. And then I kind of had to look at it through the lens of like stuff I'm passionate about and care about. Cause like, 
I think everybody has something like that where it's like, I really care about this and I don't really know how to explain it to anybody else. <laughs> like, um, it's, it's just something I really like and I can't untangle how much I like it from the person that I am. And like, that's what I connected to with all these guys is they were all like, Oh yeah, we want to do this. Cause like fighting and being the toughest guy is like integral to who I am. I need to see just for my own sake, like if I am actually the toughest guy in the world and if, you know, that, that is really important to me just to know, like if, if that actually is me, I, I make the story sound a lot more important and like psychologically complex than it is. Ultimately, it's also a story about just like a huge disastrous TV production. <laughs> it was a giant mess where like the fights were seven seconds long and they had to fill an hour and a half and like, yeah. Uh, what surprised you the most about reporting this story? That whole story, it's just, that was like a really difficult story because it was like 14 or 16 characters in a 45 minute story, which in like audio is impossible. Like I, I don't think I've done another radio story that's more than like five characters. That's over half an hour long because like, it's just so hard because in TV you can do it because you can associate a name with a face. Yeah. You associate a name with a face in radio. Like it's so much harder because you have to reintroduce them every time. Like if you have two people whose voices sound kind of similar, like you have to figure out a way to make that work. So people don't think it's the same person. Rarely do people go back to like get information that they missed earlier. Like you have to be really clear and didactic about everything. And in this one, I think it was just also really lucky that it's like every one of these people had a very distinct voice <laughs> and like, like you had a, a guy from Holland and you had like this Hawaiian sumo wrestler and you had like everybody had like a really specific voice that I think really fit their personality well. And one of the like big storytelling challenges there was just like, okay, how do I introduce like eight new characters in a minute? <laughs> you know? So I had to think of like what media does that kind of thing. Well. And like the first thing that came into my head was like oceans 11, the movie where it's like, Oh yeah, they put a team together and like every heist movie has like this team montage where it's like, you have the safe cracker and the, you know, whatever, like the, the guy who's a really slick operator, like that kind of thing. And they always have some montage where it's like, you get what, like two seconds of that person. And then you get the whole character. And like, we kind of just made something very like that basically in the, in the story where it's like, all right, we're getting the team together. Here's the montage. And we actually use like knockoff oceans 11 music. That, like, <laughs> I asked a composer to make just to kind of like evoke that. And, uh, I think something I really learned from that that was interesting and like I try to take with me now is like when you hit a weird, difficult story challenge, like look at I, I look at movies, I look at TV shows, I try to look at like other things that had a similar challenge and like try to figure out how they did it. So, you know, in the case of Ocean's Eleven, like I actually took the script and watched the scene with the script and like took notes on the script and annotated it and like just tried to figure out, okay, what, what specific like little tricks did they use to make this work and like try to steal that and, and use it in my own thing. And like, that doesn't always work, but in this case it, it worked pretty well. So yeah, I don't know. Just stealing from other places like very liberally, I guess. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's how everyone is creative that they take the ideas that they like the most from other people and they remodulate it to fit their context. The very first way that I was introduced to you was through the Slate show, The Gist, with Mike Pesca. I've been listening to Mike Pesca since probably 2015, 2016, and is my must-listen-to-every-night kind of show. Or, you know, if, if if they fall behind and they post it at like 11 o'clock at night, I end up listening to it. It's the first show I listen to in the morning kind of thing. What is it like to work on a daily show like that? Daily show? I mean, I've worked on a couple of daily shows now, and like... 
like it's it's just a huge challenge because like you have to put out a thing every day like it really changes the calculus like with you know 99% visible it's like we put out a show a week and that gives us some time so if something's not working like we could move something else up or run a rerun or something with a daily show it's like there's a line at an old line about saturday night live that like you don't saturday night live doesn't uh go on because it's ready it goes on because it's 11 30 you know <laughs> like yeah and that's kind of a daily show it's like you don't put up the daily show because like it's it's the best thing you've ever done it's just like you got to put a thing in the feed and like that was you know when i worked at the cbc on daily shows that was kind of the mentality a lot of days was like well look this is fine this will be a thing this will fill 90 minutes like i worked on a 90 minute daily show at one point which is just like so stressful but then with mike it was like the gist was a totally different thing because it's like mike just comes in he's like here's five big ideas that i've had mike would usually come in at like 3 30 p.m and be like here's all the stuff i've been thinking about today and it's like great okay let's just put a microphone in front of you and see what we can make you know so he's like a that's that's one of those like we're talking about kind of like unusual brains who can produce a lot of stuff and his his is definitely one of the most like hyperactive brains i think that i've ever seen yeah i can imagine that he comes in with five ideas because he spent all day just taking in as much information as any brain can possibly do and then double that yeah he seems like one of those people who just takes in so much content and so much information he talks a lot about how he listens to podcasts at at least double speed if not faster at least and all synapses have to be going constantly to be able to really keep up with that. What was it like to work with someone whose brain is just hyperactive all the time and constantly spitting out ideas? I imagine there has to come a point where you just say like, Mike, that's too ambitious today. Maybe let's try and do something different. There were some days like that. I mean, it's the thing though, is that he's also somebody who, you know, came up through NPR and like really knew how to make a thing that was, that would work exactly right to be four minutes and like knew exactly how to do it. So it's something where he had an idea. He's like, here's the whole idea. Like I fleshed this whole thing out. I know exactly how this is supposed to sound. And like the one thing is like whenever we see a script, because he had to produce so much stuff and he was so like just hyperactively productive, it's like his scripts made absolutely no sense. Like his scripts would just say things like temperature, exclamation point, and then just like <laughs> link to a YouTube video and then just like possible for future. And it's like, I have no idea what any of this means, <laughs> and then like, but, but it's all in his head. Like it's all just there. I mean, just that ability to like, take in so much information and just have also be able to synthesize it and then figure it out in a way that is like a pattern and connect like you know he used to do this thing that i think everybody who's worked with him is like how how did he do this where it's like he would connect like the 97 world series to like the guy running for the governor of west virginia to you know a pop culture thing and it's like he just sees these connect these threads in the matrix or something that other people just don't see this is a thing I've come to realize more and more is like, there's no one correct way to make a radio thing. Everybody has to kind of figure out the way that suits them the best early in everybody's career. They tried, I think you try to be somebody else. Like you, you try to be your influences or something, but ultimately you just have to figure out like, what is the actual thing that is you? And like, Mike knows that Mike knows the thing that's him is like those crazy connections. And like, Avery Truffleman knows what her thing is. Like, I think the best people I've worked with are the ones who kind of have figured out, like, this is the thing that is what I'm supposed to be doing as a person who makes radio and can be the best version of that. What was one of your favorite bits working with Mike? Ooh. Uh, <laughs> one thing that he really wanted to do was, like, a... This was, I mean, this is less funny in hindsight just because uh, it was all pre-Trump being elected stuff. He had this thing called the election hotline where he'd have, like a fake like his idea was okay what if we got calls from people who are anxious about the possibility of trump getting elected and then i will like calm people down and like explain 
all the ways that like Trump is probably not going to be elected. It's the Trump anxiety hotline. All right, hotline volunteers is going to be another tough day. Brew another pot of coffee. Remember, reroute all the really tough calls to me, the supervisor. All right, there's one. Hello, Trump anxiety hotline. Hi, um, I'm really worried that if Trump is the nominee, I mean, I know that everyone's saying that he has less of a chance than Hillary, but it's down to two, and one of them is Hillary. She's not popular. Help. Let's talk about how unpopular Hillary is. For many years, she was really quite popular. And we were like, okay, well, do you want us to put out a call for people? He's like, no, 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 it's much easier if we just do it ourselves and have fake phone calls. That was the thing. So we had to do a situation where, like, someone called from another room into the studio, and then we would have to, like, put a telephone filter on it, and, like, we had to, like, coach. It was actually so much harder than if we had real phone calls because we had to, like, coach people who worked in the office to sound like, and like they had to make up fake names that sounded plausibly fake, but not real enough that anyone would think it was real people calling. <laughs> like, it was such a complicated, crazy thing. But like, he's like, yeah, yeah, this is the way we have to do this. We have to find somebody to be like, hey, do you have 10 minutes? And they'd be like, okay, yeah, I guess so. And like, we'd put them in a room, be like, you have to call this phone number, you have to pretend to be this person. And here's your anxiety, but try to say what's on the script, but make it sound realistic to you. Like, it was a, a totally, it's something where like I went to journalism school and if someone had told me my job was to like train people to pretend to be real people, <laughs> but not that convincingly, <laughs> like I would have been like, okay, yeah, that's not what journalism is. But yeah, that's like that kind of thing is something, you know, that has come up in my career a bunch of times. Yeah. <laughs> talk a little bit about your involvement with articles of interest sure yeah so i was the editor on that show that was avery truffleman who uh was a producer on 99 percent invisible made this show which was a spinoff which is essentially similar to 99 pi but like it is all focused on clothing and fashion and talking about you know much bigger issues through that lens like what we buy, what, you know, we consider luxurious, what we consider valuable, like the economics and the sustainability of fashion, all this stuff. Um, yeah. I mean, Avery is just like one of the geniuses of audio stuff. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, I was, I was an editor on the second season. So the second one was about luxury, which, uh, broadly like luxury was just kind of like one, uh, like the first season that she did was about stuff we wear every day. So it, it was blue jeans. It was, you know, Hawaiian shirts was an episode, just stuff that feels kind of like commonplace and stuff we take for granted. And I think for the second season, she wanted to do something that was like kind of a left turn from that. So the second season was about, you know, kind of high fashion in a way, but also how high fashion became accessible to everybody and how like high fashion is sold to everybody. Like why we all see those ads that are for things that are completely unaffordable for us. <laughs> um, and that's, that's something I've always wondered about. It's like, why do we see those ads? Like, I'm never going to buy, you know, a piece of clothing that costs more than $60. Like, why would I, you know, why am I getting these ads? And like, just trying to unpack that and, you know, how how the fashion industry works. And it's, it's uh, yeah, she, she did a great job. I was peripherally involved. <laughs> it's interesting. One of, the, one of the episodes that stuck out the most to me was the wedding dress episode. And this idea, I grew up in southeastern Illinois, very rural part of the world, live in Arkansas now. And so, you know, there's a lot of tradition and a lot of sentimentality built around weddings and, you know, not being from 
liberal cities where it seems like you're 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 pushing the boundaries of counterculture to not wear a white dress. I've never been to one of those weddings and I know how important all of the traditions and sentimentality based around weddings are. Do you have anything specific from that episode that sticks out to you? The thing that's interesting with that episode is, you know, she interviews uh, another person that we work with, uh, Vivian Lay, who basically while she was going through that process of like picking a wedding dress and understanding the white wedding dress didn't, you know, there are times when she's like, well, what if I could, I could really buy anything. Like I'm free to buy anything I want and like something that fits my personality better. But in the end, she like lots of other people ended up being like, okay, the dress has to be white. Like there's some social pressure that it has to be white. Like even if you don't believe in the traditions, like the traditions still have power over people and there's still something that we all end up you know like there is it becomes a calculation of like do i like do i have a good enough reason to break this tradition or is it something where like it's not going to be worth the the hassle and like why does this tradition exist and like trying to figure out the thing with a wedding that's really interesting is that it's both super personal because it's the, the biggest day of in your life you know for two people who are getting married but also something that is really impersonal because it has this like huge history and you know all these rituals around it that are so heavily codified. So it's like, you have to sort of figure out both how you make it about you, but also how you acknowledge the fact that it's part of this huge tradition that has gone on for like so much of the modern era (laughs) in one way. There's something Avery points out in the episode, which like, this is what kind of really unlocked it for me and made it really connect is that the meaning of what it is to get married has changed so much over like even the last 75 years where it's like it used to be you got married to somebody and like often you were moving out of your parents house for the first time (laughs) and like that's not what happens for the most part now like if you get married it is something that often happens after you have you feel like you're on a pretty good like you you feel on good footing in your career like uh you know and obviously it's it's very different different contexts because like you know people who live in big cities get married quite a bit later than people who live in parts of you know north america that are that are less urban and like it's just something where it's different like there is a sense of like well you have to you know maybe be a bit more established or like like you just can't own a home in a city you know um like there's all these markers of like adulthood that are badly delayed if you decide you want to live in a big city with unaffordable rents that also push back the desire to get married, right? Like you just are like, well, you know, there's all these other markers I maybe have to accomplish first before I feel ready for this. podcast believe it or not is is tangentially involved with uh (laughs) with the pandemic that we're currently living through (laughs) how has COVID-19 changed the way that you work I already work separate from the rest of the team like I I am in a house you know across the continent (laughs) in like a different time zone and stuff uh so in those ways it's not that different but the way it's really different is like reporting is completely different and I think we're early next year we're really going to start to notice that like podcasts sound different because people aren't going anywhere (laughs) like reporting trips really make a huge difference in terms of how stories are told because you get scenes you are in a place with someone people feel completely different when you go to interview them in their house versus interviewing them in a studio or over the phone so all of that stuff is like we're gonna 
have all these podcasts that we're used to hearing like incredible outdoor tape and now it's like going to have more tape over skype or over the phone and it's just going to feel really different like it's it's something that we're figuring out like we're sending out microphones to people and we're trying to figure out stories where we can actually go and get some tape outside in like a safe socially distanced way you know i just did this story where like all the interviews were over zoom and i think it turned out okay but like it's not how i would have done it normally like normally i would have actually gone to see some of these people and i think the story i I think the story that we're making is pretty good but like i think it would have been better if you know i'd been there (laughs) that's just the reality of it interviews are different when you're looking somebody in the eye and like you're reading body language and you're able to like have those kind of chats before and afterwards where like maybe they remember something that they didn't think of in the interview or people just are more comfortable i think all that stuff is you know i excited for how people are responding to it and i'm interested in how everything's changing but like it will sound different i think once we've kind of run out of all the audio people recorded before lockdown started happening around the world what good habits or new routines have you picked up during this pandemic Ooh, that's interesting i am now I mean, I'm running about half an hour a day. Like, there's a high school track across the street, so I, I've been doing that. Yeah, it's funny the way that, like, I'm like there's I'm doing that. I'm doing, like, a French conversation class over Zoom. Like, I'm doing all these things that would be really difficult because I, you'd have to go somewhere to do them. <laughs> but now it's like, oh, I can just do it over Zoom. I think there's lots of bad habits, too. Like, I can't watch a movie right now without having a second screen open. And that's really bad. I need to not do that. I need to just pay attention to the movie. <laughs> but, like, it's when you're doing it all at home, it's, it's really easy to just fall into that trap. What advice do you have for up-and-coming or new journalists or audio producers? Start making a thing. Just, like, start making the thing. A lot of people don't like the idea of networking. Just treat it as making new friends. <laughs> I guess be generationally wealthy in some way. <laughs> I feel like that's probably the easiest advice. Just be a rich person and not have to worry about money. <laughs> no, I get like, just, like, it takes a while. It takes a really long time to get good at anything. Like, I, there's still lots of stuff I'm not good at. And like every, everybody has stuff they still want to be better at. Like you're going to make a bunch of bad stuff. I, for me, it was a good idea to like go to smaller stations at first and like make things where the stakes were a bit lower. Like there were consequences if you made something really bad, but like it, it was to a much smaller audience. Like don't be afraid of doing that to start out. Like just making something for a smaller audience and like, maybe it's not great, but that's kind of how you learn the basics of how to do it. And then you get better from there. Chris, thanks so much for your time, man. This has been, it's been really great to catch up. Hey, no problem. Thank you. This is really fun. I appreciate your willingness to spend a little bit of time with me. Totally. Thanks for having me, Matthew. Thanks so much to Chris for joining me. Please do yourself a favor and go listen to the episodes we mentioned in this conversation. I have links to all of the stuff we talked about in the show notes. And if you're a sports fan or a Disney fan, I hope you'll go check out my new podcast, Basket Bubble. We just launched our first episode on Monday, and I'm really excited about that one. Again, link in the show notes. Thanks for listening. We'll have a new episode up on Wednesday.